Hi folks, and welcome to the Hit Save podcast. This podcast is accompanied by a YouTube video, so if you want to see the images and artwork we are talking about in this episode, head over to our YouTube channel that you can find over at hitsave.org. Now let's dive into the podcast. And uh, welcome to another fantastic interview with indie game developers here at HitSave. This is part of our indie game preservation um, project. And today I'm joined by John Lawwitz and Vicky Way from Red Start Interactive. And um, oh, hello. And uh, I also have with me Rich McGrath from HitSave. Hello. So um, we're going to talk about Get a Grip Chip a uh, really fun platformer that launched on Switch yesterday. Um, so we're going to dive into the Switch launch a bit, um, but I want to start out with uh, you all. Who are you? Who is John and Vicky? Yeah, so I guess I'll go first. Um, so I'm John, uh, <laughs> and uh, we're both uh, directors at Red Start. Um, and yeah, I was involved with the programming on Get a Grip Chip, uh, a bit on the design. And um, yeah, we're a pretty small team, so I sort of hit on a lot of different things. But uh, yeah, primarily programming and, and some design. Yeah. Hey, hey, everyone. I'm Vicky, and I currently handle the game design for Get a Grip Chip, and that includes all the planning and awesome awesome so uh, how did you get started in game development how did you uh, how did you get to this space yeah. well I, I think we worked in prior industries but then um, a lot of them was relevant to games and that it was the gamification of actually um, uh, like training works and a lot of UX UI work and so we just we started we started with get a grip chip actually this was our first foray into games and to try to like finish that first game yeah we just sort of dove in really <laughs> um but yeah we, we were both uh previously working for larger companies um web development uh, UX UI that sort of thing and uh yeah, we thought that this would be way more interesting and you know more of a challenge. And um, yeah, I think there was a lot of appeal in the challenge of making games and starting a business. Yeah, yeah, it's very cohesive. It, there's so many industries involved in games making, programming, and design is its own and, um, art and animation, and sound, yeah. Yeah, sound, music, and and then UX UI, of course, yeah. for the game and for and, and the marketing as well. There, yeah. there, yeah, there are a lot of moving pieces to this. It's not yeah. just yeah. programming <laughs> and putting some nice sprites together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think there was some appeal in trying to uh, to tackle a fairly complex project. And, yeah. yeah. So 
was it a you quit your jobs and let's start developing a game or were you working your nine to fives coming home and like bootstrapping it what if so what was that process like and when did you decide to make that decision to like okay we don't need the nine to five anymore yeah so initially uh we were you know working at night or on weekends that sort of thing um and uh yeah so you know eventually we, we made the decision like well i think we'd be able to do a much better job if we did this full time um and uh yeah we, we just make a leap to do it um i know common wisdom is you probably shouldn't do that but uh you know we uh we were sort of in a good place we had um, gotten our enough runway in front of us to be able to take some time to get things up and running start the business start the, the project itself yeah i think the decision was made several to Honestly, like many years ago, uh, we knew um, like, it would be great to start a business. Games was definitely one of those businesses. And so we, we took paths in our entire career, health plans and things on the business side, as well as the when did you when did you start the development here uh, on Get a Grip Chip? Uh, January of twenty twenty. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. That, we that, had, um, that's quick. So yeah, the the whole production uh, it's maybe a little gray. Yeah. You know, exact the exact dates, but uh, the whole production was about nine months. Uh, I mean, obviously, we're still working on things for it, so it depends where you're counting, but. Uh, we had a couple of projects we had been working on before that, um, and ultimately we decided that uh, we wanted to move forward with this one. And so, yeah, once we made a decision, it was like January 2020. Uh, so an interesting time to be starting a project. <laughs> um, but yeah, nine months or so. And then, and obviously for the switch, um, or launch that took about I think the switch launch took about two months to get it ready. Yeah. As well. Yeah, there was sort of a lot of unknowns around that when we started porting it over. Um, but I, yeah, I was pretty happy with two months uh, for yeah. us to get that all ported over, considering it was our first time doing that sort of thing. Did uh, Did you port it yourself, or did you hire some outside help? Yeah, we did it. Yeah. And we did uh, we did content updates too. Wow! <laughs> yeah, that's really impressive. <laughs> How does that process work? Porting something to the Switch, like, did you have to go get a? I remember consoles in the past, you'd had to get a dev kit to be able to write to it. Is that similar to with the Switch? And how do you get Nintendo to be on board with it and say yes, we want the game on it? Because I've known from the DS days that they were a little bit more protective of what could get on the platform. Yeah. I think they are still relatively protective. Um, and their process is kind of, well, somewhat unknown exactly how they determine uh, what is going to go on the platform or not. But for us, we, um, you know, we had a good portion of the game was running when we started to reach out to them. Um, so we had a good example of what the final product was going to be. Um, and I think we had a pretty strong pitch yeah. that we put together. Uh, but essentially, we, you know, they, they've got an online portal where you can fill out a form. 
and then cross your fingers. <laughs> um, I, I think unless you know someone there already, that was that was the process that we went through. It's just send them our pitch, make it as good as you possibly can. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we applied in August, at the beginning of August, and we heard that in September. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and, that, and so we knew after, at that point, we knew after the steam launch that we could do the switch launch as well. And we decided to go, actually, we decided to go ahead with the switch launch being our first launch so that it would better prepare us for the switch launch as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when, when we, I, it was exhilarating for the team to get the email that says, yeah, you're accepted into the Nintendo developer program. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of their, a lot of their material and stuff is, is sort of locked down and they, you know, they don't want you to talk about it too much. Um, but yeah, when, when we did get the email, it was, it was great to see. And we started pouring through all their documentation and figuring out how to get the dev kits. Yeah, so it's, it's almost like a research phase after getting accepted where we have to figure out how all this works. So um, you, you, um, you get the dev kit, and then uh, you had to figure out all, all the, the documentation, how to actually get your game onto the console, and uh, how to try to, uh, well, rework the game to work on uh, this fancy handheld. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we had a somewhat of a leg up maybe in that front. We, you know, we had already supported uh, controllers. We, you know, we tried to support as many other controllers as we possibly could. And that actually did, you know, I guess you could use a Switch controller on your PC if you wanted. Um, so some of that we, we had working already. I think the biggest part was probably around the leaderboards. Yeah, and uh, performance. And the performance, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, the, the Switch is a pretty small device. Yeah. Um, we were, yeah, we were hooked into the Steam leaderboards system. So then we had to hook that into the Nintendo leaderboards system. And we also, I think, we had to like, rework some of the code, so it was a little more common, right? Yeah, there was a, <laughs> initially, there was a couple of areas that we, we just got away with it being a little, you know, a little less performant than it could be. <laughs> um, because it, you know, it was running on desktop, where we could assume reasonably that people could run on computer data, but no problem. But I remember in particular, there was some of our particle systems were just a little too heavy for the Switch. And so we ended up reworking how they, how they worked. Ultimately, I think visually, they didn't end up looking all that different. Um, it was just a couple of settings here and there and some of our code to make them run more efficiently. Yeah. Oh, um, the levels, too. Right, so when you load a level, um, originally, every single thing started moving at once. So we, for the Switch, we went back through. This actually made the gameplay better, and we put like sequences on triggers so that they would only start moving past through it. So basically, you can you can actually like run these levels pretty fast because it's like almost responsive to you. Mm -hmm. And actually, because yeah, it is responsive, but it's actually a performance thing as well. Like something that like, gameplay that way. I I noticed that as I was um um playing through the the first couple of levels that it, it seems like it's really 
built out for speed runs as well. Um, so someone could get really proficient at this. I am not, absolutely not. But I can <laughs> I can see someone else be very very good at this in speed running the game. Was that something that you had in the back of your your uh, minds when building the uh, the uh, the levels out? Yeah, actually, actually, like several things were like in mind. Um, it, it was like both the uh, both the like speed running type of players that want to get competitive to the um, collectathon that you could do, like players that love finding secrets. It's like it's like almost like puzzle elements, and also for players who just want to play to play and just have a good time and not do either of those. So there's like essentially like multi-path elements to get through a level. Whether you want to run through as fast as you can or take your time and search like every nook and cranny or um, just kind of a mix of both. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we tried to design the levels so that yeah you could pick your own path through it if you want to take the time, you want to go really fast. Um, and there's there's some areas in particular where yeah there's there's um, you know there's a little side route where you can go get an extra collectible um, or even if there isn't an extra collectible it's just one route is maybe a little faster but more difficult versus the safe and slow path safer. <laughs> Famously, in the original Mario Brothers, they kept the bushes and the clouds the same and just changed the color in order to save on memory. Was there any like little tricks you had to do like that when porting it over? I know you had talked about particles, but is there anything like you had to do that to get it on the Switch? We actually did that from the start. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I think a lot of the cons are different colors. And actually, there's these concrete blocks that change colors as well. They're the same shape and um, a couple barrels as well. Yeah, yeah. We, we had a handful of props we thought would be appropriate in any stage of the game. Um, and so, yeah, we did just a simple sort of color swap on, uh, so that we can get the nice variety, but still have the levels feel like they're filled out. Um, I think a lot of that was really just when it, you know, it comes to sort of time and efficiency of, of making things, um, maybe a little less on the side. Um, I think, you know, I think for a 2D game, being able to store all the, the textures and everything it seemed like it wasn't too much of an issue. We didn't do a ton of optimizations around that. For the most part, it was working all right. Um, but yeah, just in terms of, you know, we're a very small team. Um, so in terms of creating the actual art, uh, we looked for ways to create the variety without having to design, you know, a uh, hundred new objects every time we had a new idea. <laughs> It's nice to know that those tricks from like the early 80s are still in games being made today. What would you say, like, whether a game or someone, a programmer that influenced your, your, your style and your creativity in terms of interactive entertainment today? I think Nintendo's probably a big one. I mean, I, I don't know if that's, even if you could escape their influence, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, but I think one of the big parts that we, tried to focus on in terms of the design and, and the influence of it is, um, you know, I think Nintendo's done a really good job of making their games accessible. Um, they have a huge audience and, and pretty much anyone can pick up one of their games and have a good time with it. Um, and so I think that, that a big 
part of what we tried to achieve, both in this game and just in the company in general, is that we're trying to make things that are accessible, that anybody can play, um, that are not so punishingly difficult that, uh, you know, only, only like your Dark Souls type players can, <laughs> can uh, get interested in it. Um, so I think that was a big part of it was, yeah, we're, in terms of design of this game, we were looking to focus on essentially a single mechanic could get familiar with quickly, and then, um, you know, but it had enough depth to it that it would take a while to really master if you wanted to be more like a speedrunner, yeah, that sort of player. Um, so Nintendo's probably one of the yes. <laughs> Mario games. I think um, this ended up happening by accident, but also, like, I mean, someone brought up first, but Bionic Commando has been referenced as well. And, um, so just the grappling aspect of that. Yeah, we have um, sort of a similar behavior in terms of grappling. There's a bunch of different ways you, you might be able to do grappling, like you can swing or you can um, take an approach more like what we did, which is you grapple towards a point and you go straight towards it. Um, and I think, you know, we, we tried to go a step further than maybe what Bionic Commando is doing in that there's this moment where you can kind of leap off of the uh, attach point after. Um, yeah, and they actually act, like it, it, in the end, it, it's actually like a platformer, just like a jump. We, like when you hold and launch off the bolts, it, it is like very similar to a jump. Wow. I, I yeah. noticed that when playing the first time when you got on and then you hold it, like you could do a little jump and it completely opened up the levels for me. And how to get through some of the points i was like oh i get it now okay cool because i was having so much trouble going over i'm like what's going on and then i noticed that i was like oh so i guess yeah same for me when coming up with the design how how are you teaching one how are you teaching players to learn those mechanics in game like what is that like and then trying to see how players interact with it and trying to figure out how come they don't get this how can we make them understand it it's almost like this weird in between of trying to communicate yeah. Oh, we did a lot of playtesting. Yeah. I, I actually, okay, so fun fact. I think we changed the tutorial about one week before we launched in October. <laughs> and because just like, just constantly, because we're constantly bringing people in, we were realizing that it was, I, there was something of the way the tutorial taught people that I think, oh, it was too much at once. We needed, we needed the players to review what they had just learned, so we opened up the tutorial a little bit more. Yeah, we, um, yeah, it was like a week a week before launch. We uh, we made some changes to it. I think I think the realization um, partially was that at that stage we, we were doing a decent job of the opening the pants. Um but yeah, there wasn't enough time for the player to actually sort of explore each aspect of it before we moved on to the next episode. so we added these segments that were just using the same uh part of the mechanic uh over and over um and it didn't introduce something new for you know an extra room and we felt that was the right choice yeah. <laughs> it, it allowed the player to play with it fun before we throw a new concept at them um yeah yeah, like that element of exploration, even though it's like a little bit try to like add some exploration to it. So you can just like flop around that 
yeah, in a safe space. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, teaching the player took, took, as you mentioned, took a ton of iteration, both with our play testers, in the tutorial, or even just when we were initially designing uh, Chip. Um, we went through a ton of iteration on, on like the millisecond by millisecond you know, movements of the hook and how long it takes to from you know from when you connect to when chip is at the anchor point, um, and you know every little tiny number in that sort of equation. Yeah, was, it's like it's fine tuned to uh, to like how it felt right. Yeah, so yeah. That, that definitely took a lot. Yeah, it definitely has a really good feel to it. Uh, the the speed and, and the um, uh, how the gravity behaves and everything it just feels right for the character um so yeah i i would imagine that would have taken a lot of testing and a lot of iterations to get just right um yeah. similar yeah. to um what you see in um uh, brawlers as well uh getting the the punches just right yeah i think um yeah it was definitely a process uh <laughs> I think we were sort of surprised at the like the difference that a very small change would make. Um, one of the ones that, that I remember tweaking a bunch was just aiming, right? So you know we've got the the right stick on the controller. If you move it around, you can aim at 360 degrees. We had played around with a bunch of different options about how that would work, and it seems like a very simple thing. Like, you just aim. How <laughs> hard could be? Um, but yeah, we tried things like locking the aim to specific angles, um, so it sort of snap in eight ways or four ways. Um, and that was all sort of in an effort to try and get the, the the launch off of these bolts to go a particular direction or be more consistent and uh, provide some like, forgiveness for the player. Um, so I think ultimately it is locked to. Certain directions, but there's a lot of them. It's you know, it's I forget the exact number. Sixteen or thirty-two. Yeah, like thir thirty-two different uh, directions. So things should feel a bit consistent, but there's still a ton of expressive um, ability to make decisions or or mess up. <laughs> so uh, I want to dive into um, the game itself. So we uh, we've been talking about it. Get a grip chip. We're, we've been talking about. Um, the, the mechanics and everything. So I'm going to uh, showcase a few things here. Um, I'm going to start out with some screenshots, and I would love for you to uh, talk to these. I'm going to uh, see, Absolutely. talk about what we're seeing here. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> that's Chip. <laughs> <laughs> and the battery box. Yeah, so this is, a, this is one of the, this is in the first level, actually. I'm sorry, not first level. It's in the first world. And um, this is one of like the challenge rooms, and I, I think this is the one of the first times that we're teaching the player to like go over static drones before like they start moving around and uh, over them. Yeah, so it's it's a relatively early challenge, but yeah, it's a, it's a secret area, so it's it's got a little bit more difficulty to it. As you can see, the ground is completely dangerous, and there's obstacles in the air that you have to get through. Uh, so if you like managing yeah. more than one thing at once. Yeah. Oh, uh, this is the basement of the factory, which is why it's the first world, and it's got that, like, 
hazy, like musty basement feel. Um, the uh, the background there, just the window, uh, was actually an art asset that we had added later. Um, there was a couple of spots throughout the game sort of uh, you know a more unique sort of background element. Um, so this this particular one only shows up in a first world, and uh, we thought that this room was a really good one for this game. But yeah, I think it was added pretty late in the production. It's a storage room for the dogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah yes, this one is um, this is one of the boss levels or the chase levels rather. Um, I always really liked this particular uh, puzzle or this challenge here with. Uh, so each of these columns would collapse as you grapple onto them. And uh, I think once we had put that into the game, and we were like, okay, this, this is really fun. This has got to be one of the, one of the chase levels. Um, and uh, yeah, so <laughs> in this moment, uh, you can see Chips jumping towards one of the battery bo boxes up in the top. I think this particular one went through a ton of iteration as well. We changed this challenge a lot over and over and over because um, just getting the exact timing between this uh, sort of wall of goop chasing you and the element collapsing and trying to grapple and jump all at the same time. And it's sequence music as well. Yeah. That oh. took a lot of tries to get ready. <laughs> I, I, I love that. I love uh, sequencing together with the music as well. Uh, that's, that's always fun. Um, yeah. So uh, I want to uh, showcase a few uh, moving images here for everyone who's watching as well before we dive. Mm -hmm. Sure. So uh, I want to dive into uh, some of the moving images here as well to kind of showcase how the game looks when uh, when you're playing it as well. So you can see here, uh, Chip is moving at lightning speed, um, <laughs> grappling grappling all these little, what do you call them? Buttons or? Bolts. Bolts, that's right. Um, so the, the, the core mechanic here, uh, grappling these bolts, moving around and, and uh, finding these uh, small, uh, small little bots that will follow you to the end of the level. And it's just super smooth. Uh, I was very, uh, as I said before, I was super, super happy with how good it felt. Um, and uh, I, I mentioned this earlier before the interview as well. I love hard platformers. I have a real um, hard time when I can't jump though so this was a this was a, a a mental shift for me uh to kind of move into um thinking about how how do i transport myself in kind of move around the levels but as you said grappling essentially becomes jumping yeah yeah i mean i think we found in our play testing that uh, most people it takes them a minute or two to, to get their head wrapped around just the, the main mechanic, right? The fact that you can't jump and that you have to do all of your movements and really grappling. Um, which was interesting to see. It's sort of interesting to see people sort of work through that problem as they're playing it. Um, but uh, yeah, in our, in our playtesting, I think we most people within 
you know, maybe a minute or two of just playing, start to get the hang of it and start to see what it's all about. And um, you can see sort of the, the light bulb go off. Um, and I feel like once we saw that in our play testing, we thought, okay, yeah, we're, we're onto something here. <laughs> and yeah, we didn't realize like we careful about um, like progressing the difficulty of all the levels. And just, you know, was, I think a lot of these are the later levels. And oh, this is definitely, this is one of the harder ones. This is like <laughs> the final room of like third to last level. You have to sneak between like four bombs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and before they explode. So yeah, so we definitely had to um, make sure that like people progressed like incremental ways as mm -hmm. well. And like, you know, step it back a little bit. To like get the fire break. Yeah, yeah. We um, one of the things we're looking at is just how how often or how much of the stream is currently dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, you know, looking at like just the ground, for example, um, the difficulty of the level you could maybe measure it by what percentage of the ground will you know cause you to to lose. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, in, in the first couple of levels you can that there's large stretches of area where it's mostly just fun, right? You can just grapple from point to point. There really aren't that many hazards that, that can get in the way. Um, yeah, if you messed up, you just um, you just land on the ground and it's like back around. Yeah. yeah. And then some of these yeah. later levels, uh, there's no safe zones. <laughs> yeah. um, and this one's actually deceptively easier than it looks because basically the saws are in the way. Like once you, I think the, the launch is fixed. So um, once you launch off it, there's like a lot of like, between um, like where you are in the air and like the actual salt. So it just some of the stuff just looks harder than it look than it is, which is also like boring. <laughs> yeah, we we tried to make uh, the challenges in a way that people felt good, <laughs> or that there was a lot of like close calls. Yeah. Um, which that was a really hard balance to find as well, and I, I think the playtesting you know, is invaluable. Finding, yeah. Oh, this one's cool because you can go um, the the one with the uh, spinning saws. Like, there's a couple ways you can actually go. Like, if you want to just like jump over the top, you can do that, or you can just like hang on and go to the bottom. And that's a little bit safer as well. Um, one of the other things I think that. Uh, made a big difference, uh, at least for me, when, when we were working on this, in terms of how the grappling felt, was some of the visual components that go along with it. Um, so obviously, like, the timing of everything and the spacing, was, you know, we had, we had to be very careful about tweaking all of that. Um, but there's also a couple of uh, relatively subtle um, visual elements, I think, that also just make it that much more satisfying to grapple everything. So when you attach to one of these bolts, you can see there's a little... Uh, ring that comes out each one to just kind of indicate that you did connect to it. Or the packing keynotes that like, come out of the box when you come back in. <laughs> yeah, that's really fun. Um, but yeah, so some of them end up being, uh, well, the packing keynotes are pretty loud. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, some of them end up being pretty subtle. Um, so you might not even notice it while you're playing, but you kind of feel the, the moment where you connect. You know, you, you know, sort of subconsciously that you connected to the ball successfully. You said, you know, you're indie company, smaller company, 
Um, how did you go about getting playtesters and, and going through that process for your game? Yeah. Um, okay. So when it was in person, we utilized the community in New York, which was both uh, Wonderville and NYU Game Center. So Wonderville is like a bar, I think that's and uh, sorry, <laughs> but they're, they're a bar. Okay, Wonderville is a bar in Brooklyn that runs a monthly playtesting and just like people from the community can come in and like, test out their, like whatever they're working on, no matter what state it's in. And they also do arcade stuff too. And then, um, so NYU has a, has a game program and so they run a weekly playtest Thursday and there's tons of people that come by. And so we just, we just go out and, Bring it to people. We got like a ton of feedback. Like I think we were, yeah, we were going out like every week to like get people to play test. And then once we went off online, that's so we had started like then we just set up like OBS. And we're just reaching out on social media um, at first, and then Wonderville and NYU. So now, so then we just did remote on this way. Yeah, we um, yeah. I, I guess uh, so. It, it's a bit of a hustle. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it you know, it's a it was a good amount of effort to uh, have something ready for these weekly playtesting sessions, and also just to find find them, yeah. um, and and sort of get involved with them. Uh, does take quite a bit of effort, but um, it's, it's totally worth it. Yeah, it's so worth it because like people are so creative and. Up with so many different ways to like break it, yeah, break it, play it, and like find so many. And they try to, and yeah, people are just so like so many different ways of like thinking about like uh, the world. And we would find people like trying to solve something a certain way to move forwards. And we're just like, oh, this is a great idea. I, I think one point in the earlier levels, I know about. Just because someone was trying to figure out how to go over that way, and and I had set it to like have the player go under. It's like it didn't matter; like they could go over as well. <laughs> and yeah, it's so, sort of like eye opening, uh, just to get yeah. someone else's perspective on your idea. Uh, it was pretty amazing how sort of blind you get to well everything really, um, and especially I feel like especially in the level design, you know, you, you've been looking at it so much you've been playing it and you sort of came up with it to begin with yeah um so it's really hard to try to sort of distance yourself from that and look at it with fresh eyes yeah yeah it's like i think someone actually our composer said her because she actually participated in a lot of the playtesting and she said it's basically like yeah playing games against your own brain it's like playtesting your own game <laughs> and uh, Oh, yeah, actually, we had a lot of, like, friends playtest. Okay, really fun story. I think uh, John's grandma playtested it as well. Oh, and that's that cool. that is actually a really big part of, like, helping us um, like, revise the tutorial as well. Is she a, a, a gamer, or is it kind now of... Now she is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Uh, no, so she, I think maybe she played the uh, original NES, like, when it first came out. 
um, but had probably had not played a game since. Um, so yeah, that, that was great uh, to, to sit down and play the game with her. Um, and yeah, we, we made some revisions based on her input. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> that, that's fantastic. I, I love that. I, involving your uh, your family, uh, I mean, family and friends, of course, but yeah, the, uh, an older generation as well. Uh, I yeah. love it. We um, we also have a group in Boston, uh, Boston Indie Devs um, group, where the, the game was taken for play testing uh, once or twice. Um, we have a, a couple of our teammates in Boston, yeah, so they, they took it out there and got some feedback as well. I think it, I think it's generally like a student group. I'm not mistaken, um, but it's open to the public, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, those sort of local groups have been really great, friends and family. Uh, yeah, just anybody, like, we just try to get anybody, because, like, anybody can, like, be a gamer. So, like, yeah, we want to open it up for, like, so many types of Yeah. So you're getting all this feedback. How do you know which stuff how do you filter through of what you want and what you don't want? What's good and what's not good? Um, right? Cause I'm sure you're getting some feedback and you're like that. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I guess like, so this is a little like production. So some of it we could tell like, okay, is this like a one second fix? And we knew if it opened up the path for like uh, more variety of play, like if it was just like shifting an asset down one, year, that's like, that's that's what we called live updates. We would sometimes do playtests if we update the game file when <laughs> people were playtesting. And then, so feature requests, like, I, we generally knew how long stuff to, to make. And so, if we knew it was a feature request, we would just, like, like pocket it away in the feature request section. And, and like, we could kind of gauge as well, like, based on the number of times things were getting requested that, like, okay, we should probably add this as a feature. Yeah. I think a big part of it, too, was trying, during the playtesting, um, especially if it's in person, trying not to say too much, <laughs> just in general. Yeah. Uh, mostly just listen to what, listen and observe what the person is doing. Um, I think I'll sort of get a lot of information about how they're experiencing things. Just based on their like their body language and, and if they're smiling or frowning, or, um, so I, I think yeah, just trying to like watch and, and listen and see what their experience is, um, and then what they say is sort of you can maybe have an easier time sort of interpreting what what their actual feedback is. Um, I feel like a lot of the time we'll get feedback like oh well I don't you know just generally oh, maybe I don't really like the way this this uh, the grapple feels right, um, but in watching them, you could sort of determine like, oh, okay, it's it's actually maybe just a little slow, or the angle isn't quite right, or like this this maybe more specific element of it uh, was something that you could visibly see they were struggling with. Um, so yeah, the, the combination of, of their written or for what they're saying, uh, along with um, the sort of moment to moment experience of them actually going through it, I feel like helped helped us to sort of yeah. lead out exactly what to change and what to leave. Yeah, yeah, that like immediate reaction to definitely a you know, telling point of um, how to filter some of like the changes that we need to be made. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, and actually, we were so when we were online, actually, people send us video rather than doing the write ups of how they felt. And so, and also, uh, made for less playtesters, actually. It's just, yeah, it's just like play the game, just record, and we'll just we'll be able to tell, like, based on like where you're getting stuck and how much you're trying something over and over again. Yeah. Um, and we also did take, like, one of the repeated. Uh, feedback was like we asked for more checkpoints. Um, there were actually half the number of checkpoints for a very long time before um, that was added, and um, that, that it, it did make the game way better. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's really hard to know. You know, the, the, like we might get a piece of feedback that's along the lines of like, well, the game's really difficult, or like this one area I keep dying, like, or it's the game's maybe frustrating in this part. And so it's maybe not terribly specific exactly what to do about that. Um, and I think, yeah, over the course of multiple playtesting sessions, we sort of identified a pattern and determined that if we did add more checkpoints, it, it would make the game a little bit easier, but um, it, it actually didn't take away from the challenge of it or it didn't, you know, it didn't, I, I maybe we were a little hesitant at first, like, well, it's going to be too easy or, um, yeah, it'll just make things trivial. Um, but yeah, once we sort of took the leap yeah. and changed it, I think the game ended up much better because of it. So yeah, I guess sometimes the, the direct feedback you get isn't a, the change that you ultimately want to make, and um, it's sort of a well, yeah. It, it, the, the more yeah, the more feedback you can get, the more uh, sort of notes you can get on a particular thing. Uh, maybe the easier it is to determine exactly what area needs to change. Yeah, it's kind of like data collection, actually. We just try to collect as much like data and kind of like identify patterns um, from different types of players and that would help drive some work to make it. Yeah. Yeah, and it, the, trying to re remove your own bias from it, as I mentioned, you just sort of get blind to a lot of stuff. So, yeah, trying not to, to sort of contaminate your, your data with your own. Yeah. Uh, opinion and yeah, you uh, can't be too emotionally attached. To, like, yeah, we definitely like, build emotional attachment from like the content, just knowing we would like make huge cuts to things. Yeah, I, I think I spent like several days working on a level before I I just ended up scrapping the whole thing because it just <laughs> was not working. And it was a really cool. I thought it was a cool idea. It was going to actually be more elaborate, like level but it was um a little rough to pull off i think the production is not worth like digging further into that there was um it's reminded me of a story that um just during production um one of the features that we so ultimately we didn't cut it but we reduced its use throughout yeah. the game um there's there's this uh move you can do. Um, so we've got these anchor points where you grapple towards them and then they start to collapse. <clears throat> and you can do this relatively advanced move where you hang on to it as it's collapsing and then while it's sort of part way down from collapsing you can leap off of it. Um, and that ends up being like a really challenging move to pull off um, or for someone to sort of organically discover uh, because you're on this thing that's kind of breaking and exploding and and you just want to get out of there um so originally we had a couple of 
throughout the game where you have to use this move of holding onto it and then leaving off later. Um, and we found that just people were just getting frustrated by it. And, and for the small group of people that, that did figure out how to do it, it also, you know, like they were more relieved than satisfied, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, we had, in, we had this one moment in particular uh, right at the end of the game, I think it was the second to last level, where the very first part of the level was using this move. And um, was it right after we launched? I think it was I like... I think it was right after we launched. Yeah, I think it was maybe the first person we saw play the game. <laughs> and they just got so stuck for like 15 minutes and we had to tell them on the <laughs> Twitch chat how to get through it. So, I, I mean, it was really like, it was really, like, we didn't need to change the whole level around it because the whole the whole level had been actually reworked so that you didn't need this mechanic. Um, it's, except the very beginning. <laughs> yeah, and but you could get through the level faster using this mechanic. Um, so we ended up just, like, shifting another thing a couple of units up so you could just, like, either hold on to it if you wanted to hold on or, like, last it. Yeah, but that that one was fun because you know uh, one of our programmers liked this mechanic especially and was a little heartbroken I think to see us change it. Um, but yeah, seeing the uh, seeing like the first person get stuck on, we're like, okay, I think we better we better ease this up a little bit. And I, I think we ended up patching yeah. it before too many people actually got to that part of the game. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah, we did learn to just. Like Tried to there's oh there's like a multiple solutions to solving most things. You can actually get like through this like gift area by going around. I think we were just showing off by that you could go straight through all all the bombs. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I really enjoyed when uh, when you get started the the first couple of levels, um, it reminded me of Mega Man for the NES, uh, where you kind of get stuck quickly and you need to figure out how to move past certain uh, obstacles and, and how to use your grappling hook in, in a in a use well functional way uh, so it definitely reminded me of Mega Man and early platformers in uh, this is how you teach someone playing the game without having a um, like a full on hand led tutorial as well yeah yeah, yeah, I think like took some inspiration from definitely from Mega Man. Yeah. Um, I think also uh, some of the Metroid games, essentially, where you'll get these new moves throughout the whole game and you have to learn how to use them uh, on the fly. Um, but yeah, that, that, that technique where essentially lock the player into an area until they've learned that particular, you know, sometimes complicated or unintuitive like, mechanic. Um, uh, but it's safe too, as well. Like mm -hmm. those, areas, like learn it. It's like, I, yeah, you can't, you can't die in like a significant part of the first level. <laughs> yeah, and that's we were kind of mentioning earlier. I added a section tutorial, uh, so that the the players could have a bit of fun with the mechanic uh, in between these little learning moments. Um, and that, yeah, that was sort of the direct result of seeing people get locked into a single room so that they had to learn the mechanic. 
Um, but then, yeah, we realized, well, it's just not that fun. Yeah. You know, if you, if you get stuck, like, yeah, you learned it, but now that you there, there wasn't a moment to like have fun with it. Yeah. So yeah, we, we ended up adding that in, first at the beginning of the game. Yeah. I think there's like a, like a world building aspect of it too. Um, there's like quite a bit of like the environment that you'll see in the first, I, I think in the tutorial section in the first world that just kind of establishes like the world of Yeah, we kind of yeah. went like a little crazy having a little bit of fun there. We, um, another aspect of the, the difficulty uh, player was how we, we spent a lot of time discussing how far apart uh, the introduction of new mechanics and new, new bolts essentially would come in. So, you know, we've got a variety of different bolts and they've got little different behaviors um, and different challenges associated with each one. Um, and I think that was also that was a big part of the arranging the introduction of, the, of these mechanics. Um, so we had designed a level around a particular mechanic or a particular bolt. Um, and as we progressed through our playtesting and development of the game, took some of these levels and rearranged the order that they appeared because they were much harder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's okay. There's a in the last world. There's a. I think it's called major lasers but it's it's there's definitely it's like the introduction of lasers and that used to be the fifth level of the first world and it was just like the lasers were so difficult that um just mostly like with time constraints we're just, like, okay, we're just gonna put this in the final world because most of the level is still it is fun but like trying to like learn how to dodge lasers and get while you're still getting a hold of grappling is a little bit much. Um, yeah, so um, yeah, so some like shifting went around. We shifted a couple levels in the first world as well, just like and that was like the cool part of making like, a level by level game was that you could just shift um, you could just shift levels around to handle the progression. Mm -hmm. And oh and there is also a uh, a world, sorry, a level in the fourth world we used to be in the first world, and that level was almost done before we shifted it back into fourth world. But that was actually a world building thing because it had conveyors. But because the theme of the fourth world is more like high techy, um, we just like something. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Let's just move it to the fourth. World. Like thematically fits better there mm -hmm. as well, and, and then so we just like adjusted the difficulty. It's easier to make levels difficult than it is to make them easier, so that wasn't that bad. <laughs> yeah, e easy and engaging. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that was probably one of the hardest aspects of making this game in general is balancing the difficulty and the progression, the progression of the difficulty. Um, I think not not only did we shift the levels around and you know sort of shift the the introduction of mechanics, um, uh, but we also um, introduced just the, the level progression um, or an aspect of the level progression where the player can kind of choose to, to tackle a particular level next um, within sort of that. So what I mean is uh, at the beginning of each world, you have to play the first um, and I think and the second level, if I'm remembering yeah. correctly. 
Um, but once you get past that, three levels open up and you can pick which one you want to try and tackle next. And um, in order to beat the world, you can actually skip one level completely if you need to. Um, so that, that led us, well, we had a couple of iterations through that whole system, like how is that going to work and unlock and that sort of thing. Um, but that, what that let us do is did have a level that was harder. We could put it towards the end as one of these that you could skip if you really wanted to. Um, and so, yeah, that, that let us sort of have a balance between, okay, the, the regular path is maybe a little easier for your more casual players, but then there's these more difficult challenges, um, even within a single world. Um, but yeah, it, it took us a while to sort of figure out that balance and how that might work. It, if it made sense to people. So uh, I want to dive into uh, some of the early prototypes that you had as well uh, and kind of showcase these for, for everyone who's watching here. So let's um, uh, pull up some of the um, early prototype images uh, first, and then we'll uh, uh, also dive into the <laughs> video. Yeah, so this was uh, a piece of concept art, essentially. Um, we were trying to sort out what the fourth world yeah. would be. And um, we, knew, we had, I think we had a vague idea exactly where it was headed sort of thematically. We wanted it to be like sort of this research type of facility. Yeah. I think like the prompt was like high tech. <laughs> yeah, um, I think there was a little bit of maybe like... Um, and uh, yeah, we're working with our artist to... Um, create these, these pieces of concept art. Um, and I think one of the things that stood out, especially for this one, was tubes in the background that got the little chips floating in them. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we knew exactly what purpose they served in the factory, but... I think they were an influence for the checkpoints eventually, because they, they became... The checkpoints are like pneumatic tubes, and you have to bring the chips to the pneumatic tubes to um, save them, and they up them back to the hub. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so yeah, I think they may have come from here actually. But then they the tubes itself went into the game because I think those those became just like a background asset and um little acid tubes. Yeah, so. we we did remove the, the chips from them and made them more tubes of acid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no chip for fun. Yeah, this one's one of my favorites, too. Uh, this is for World 3, which is our abandoned floor of the, of the factory. Um, there was, uh, I think this was one of the first ones we did. Yeah, I think so. And I think just the color and like the lighting, everybody on the team was like, yeah, that's, that's great. You could definitely see a game there. <laughs> um, I think we, we also spent a lot of time getting sort of the texture of everything right. Um, as you can see, there's sort of these little, like, uh, maybe fungus or green things growing. Yeah, green, you know, green moss or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, it, you know, it's, it's sort of like a subtle accent on these objects, but that was something that made it into the final game, and I think um, it, it adds just a little bit of flavor in, in the sort of subtle details. Um, but yeah, we, we took these uh, pieces of concept and we actually sort of up into assets that would be used throughout the game. So these tubes that are in the background were an asset that we could place 
you know, they sort of uh, they made like a flexible version of yeah. it. So you can place it anywhere you want it. The vines actually came back at chains, wires, and so speaking of like assets that we it's actually the yeah, the vines, the chains and the wires are a similar structure, but then over like with totally different sets into it. But they like, you know, they're like a wiry thing that you bend and they more or less animate the same way. One other aspect of this uh, piece of concept art in particular was uh, you'll notice the background looks like some perspective on it, like maybe it's like a semicircle uh, or, or just a, you know, a cylinder, you're in a giant cylindrical room of some sort. And uh, we, we were looking at this and we're thinking, well, it's a 2D game, so how does that work? You know, how, how can we make this work? So I think we, um, it's, it ended up being the only 3D asset in the whole game. We've actually took this texture of the windows and we've mapped it onto a, a cylinder, and that's in the background. And so as you ascend this room, you can actually see the perspective change a little bit in the background. Ultimately, it's, a, it's pretty subtle, but um, yeah, we really like the way that the, the cylinder looked here, the background looked, and so we figured it was yeah, worth yeah, it was worth putting a, a small 3D asset in the background to do that. Yeah, I, I agree. It looks uh, phenomenal. Uh, let's see what we have next here. Yeah, oh, this is the lasers. <laughs> They're in a world um, because we like put them in like really early on in play testing. And actually, there was okay that green thing. Uh, we used to have two things you could collect, which were these like uh, screws, and we ended up cutting that for the bots, because it just like helped make the game a lot more focused. And well, you might notice the chip looks a little different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very chip different. Chip will make over after this as well. <laughs> and uh, so did the battery bots. <laughs> yeah, so this was like one of the early designs uh, they were experimenting with chip, and it was originally going to have this sort of like screen, screen-like face. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we, we wanted to, well, I think we wanted to go cuter. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I think the, the screen ended up just looking a little like, uh, I don't know, it's not that it's not cute necessarily, but it's a little like bug-eyed maybe, or it wasn't quite the right tone, uh, yeah. that we wanted to go for. And, um, and then, yeah, his, his, the design of like his body also was like a little a little too like old fashioned. He wasn't it wasn't uh, yeah. yeah. And actually, yeah. Oh, the grapple. So the grapple, I think you'll see, it comes out of the middle of Chip's body. We hadn't moved it to Chip's head yet. And as we were doing concept art, the grapple on the on the head was reading so much better. So we just we shifted it to the head and. It, and I think it like paid off because you can really see where the grapple is at all times. Yeah, that, that was like one of the big focuses for the character design in general was obviously we wanted to make a character that was appealing, um, but the game focuses around just a single mechanic. So we, we figured that should be front and center. The, the main mechanic should be so obvious that the minute you see the main character, you can get an yeah. idea of what, what's going to happen. Um, I think that's ultimately why it turned out as well. Is that it kind of, uh, 
it offers an affordance, right? People sort of naturally understand what that's going to do, even if they've never seen it in action. And, and the emojis were available for us to utilize. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the... Robo and the magic. <laughs> really no <milk that. laughs> Um But yeah, there, there's some features in here too, man, that I'm cutting, like the, the extra collectibles. Um, you can kind of see it a little bit, but the, the battery bots are connected by like a rope or a cable. Um, so we had this like string of them like, all in a line. I think that, that ended up yeah. looking kind of strange. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, so the, the battery bots are, their movement and how they follow you are really heavily influenced by how the keys follow Mario. Yeah. Ah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Um, yeah, we spent some time looking at that behavior. The behavior of actually coding it, I remember, was complicated. Um, it, was, it was more complicated than I think we were anticipating. Uh, to get, to get the, the bots to follow you in sort of a pleasing pattern and, um, yeah, be able to respond to the player moving very quickly around the room. You know, we don't know exactly what the player is going to do next. And, um, have them sort of move in a natural way that also looked good. Took uh, a number of iterations. And I think we also had some performance problems initially with uh, tracking all eight of those bots and their movement um, just in the way that we had programmed. <laughs> so we, we got there eventually, but uh, yeah, that, that underwent a lot of revisions. Yeah. yeah, just the bots following. But it, it's cool. Like It feels like it's like visually very pleasing when you're like swirling around through the air and all of And actually, one of the uh, unlockable skins that we added for the um, for the Switch release, uh, it causes all of the checkpoints to be hidden in the game, which makes the game obviously a lot harder. But what that also means is that the battery bots don't get rescued until you reach the end of the level. So if you're playing with this particular skin, uh, you can get this long line of battery bots following you throughout the, each level. Um, and that's a lot of fun to see. That's cool. Uh, I think we have some iterations as well, yes, here, of Chip. Yeah. yeah. So we the, the ones on the left here, I think, were very early. Well, actually, maybe those came later now that I think about it, because he's, he's definitely got the hook on his head. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you can see we really like the idea of the screen face. We thought it would allow us to give him more emotion and facial expressions and that sort of thing. Um, and ultimately, I think we just decided that we're just going to give him the facial expressions, even if he's supposed to be a metal robot with a metal, you know, metal face. Um, he's still just going to move around and bounce around and be flexible, that sort of thing. Um, and I think ultimately, uh, one of the main reasons we moved away from this that you can see on the right hand side um, was essentially the simplicity of the shapes. So you can see these are kind of pretty complicated. Like his body shape is, you know, what is it? It's hard to describe. Yeah, Chip's got two arms. Yeah, he has, some of these. Yeah, he's got two arms. Um, and yeah, I think it just ended up looking sort of complicated, didn't work as well. Um, and so you can see on the left hand side, we're trying to find some nice. Nice, simple, appealing shapes that would read much faster, um, but still get us some of that expressiveness. It's funny, you can, you can kind of see, you know, where he came from. There's one sort of in the middle 
it's the bottom right of the left-hand side, where that's pretty close to what Chip is. We just ended up making face and body a little bigger and gave him the little arms. Uh, but yeah, you can see how he sort of like we took pieces from all of these designs and uh, to, to come up with the final one here. I still like a lot of these though. Like, <laughs> oh, the one with the mouth, the grapple coming out, the mouth is so good. Yeah, the one, it looks kind of like a frog. Uh, it's really expressive. It's very cute, but I think that for that one, it was it was maybe a close decision at yeah. one point. But um, we thought that maybe the the uh, thing coming out of his mouth over and over would end up being a little off. <laughs> Just a little. Have you thought about like releasing these on like as an update as like here's some different versions of chip if you want to go through? That's actually That's a, a fantastic really idea. idea. <laughs> we when we were coming up with the different uh, you know skins for chip uh, or equipment we call them. Um, I think we came up with ninety. Ninety. Yeah. 90. <laughs> <It's> like, too many. <laughs> um, we wanted them to all be puns, so we had, yeah, we were just one day where we sat down and come, came up with 90 different skins. Um, and ultimately, we had to pick our favorite eight or so. Yeah, yeah we went down to eight, but, you know, there's always, now there's always room for more. Yeah, so it would be pretty awesome to do, like, a prototype, uh, prototype-type chip. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that, that would be great to do. It's a good idea. So, speaking of prototypes, we we do have an early prototype video as well that I think ties really well in here. So uh, let's have a look at that and uh, chat a bit about uh, what we're seeing here. <laughs> I think this is one of the first ones. This is like when we took this out for playtesting. Uh, yeah, I think we took this was the one that we took out to Wonderville. Yeah, the, yeah, the first time it went out. Yeah, it um, was. I think well received. <laughs> uh, you can see it's pretty rough, though. Um, I think that the main difference in playing it for me is that just the controls feel very stiff. Um, and you can see a lot of the, the main idea is here, um, but yeah, it just didn't feel good. Yeah, it's not very forgiving. Like you really precise on the joystick. Yeah, you can see it here, like like just inching, inching forward. And- trying to like maneuver the aimer up and down and um the oh another thing is like it was originally going to be ruined and we ended up um opening it up way more also (laughs) you just walk into like a hazard and die (laughs) which is a little rough (laughs) how do you make it feel like obviously, just looking at this and playing the game, it feels different. Like, what what is that process to make the controls feel the way that they feel? I don't know how to explain that better. Yeah, I think there was actually a lot of like forgiveness in the controls that we ultimately put in, and I think a lot of the process was really, you know, going through the play testing and identifying where something didn't feel quite right. I think a lot of the time, the solution to that was adding essentially forgiveness forgiveness. so making it um trying to make the game behave in a way that the game does what the player is intending to do even if they didn't exactly push those buttons exactly the right way um so uh just as an example like um uh 
one of the things that we added is, and this may be a little bit on the, on the technical side of things, but when you press the button to actually grapple, you would expect that the grapple comes out. Right? You push the button, you'd expect it to grapple. But um, one of the areas where we added this forgiveness is if you were to press the grapple button a little early, right? So let's say you press it, the thing comes out, and then you want to press it again. If, uh, if you press it before the grapple has actually fully come back to you, uh, originally, nothing would happen, right? So you press the button a little too early, and because it hadn't fully reset yet, nothing would happen. So we added this forgiveness where if you press the button a little early or late in some case, the grapple will still come out. Um, and so, yeah, like on the code side of things, it's not exactly intuitive to say, okay, you know, <laughs> uh, read the input early and then apply it later. Uh, so it, it ends up getting making things like a little side for the player. It just feels very natural, right? Like if I push the button, you expect it to come out, even if it wasn't timed perfectly. Uh, another area was just in the player's feet, essentially, or like in the characters, uh, not feet, but the, the wheels. Uh, so we were seeing that people would make uh, an attempt to land on a platform or on an edge, and they would miss it by like a fraction of a pixel. Um, <laughs> and just because they were a little bit, um, they wouldn't make the jump. And it's very frustrating because it, it looked like you were going to make it. And it felt like you had done everything right, but it was so yes, yeah. And so it just, yeah, it just didn't feel, it just didn't feel right, even though technically they did miss it. <laughs> um, so yeah, we had, we had added this forgiveness where even if you're a little below the ledge, as long as you were within a certain range, we would just sort of nudge you on top of the platform. Um, and yeah, it just feels feels better, feels more natural. Uh, God of War 3 has a lot of forgiveness in it, and so we actually looked at that game a lot and were breaking down how they were doing things um, to just, like, add a lot of that in ourselves. Forgiveness in the combat? Yeah, in the movement. I think it was actually the combat as well. Oh, because... Yeah, you're either throwing an axe or something, but you're just, um, it didn't directly translate over because, yeah, it was combat. But the way they had things moving um, was like very forgiving. And it was, and I, and I knew this because I hadn't played a lot of um, 3D combat games. And it was the first one I beat, and I realized, like, okay, they have a lot of forgiveness in here. So we were just like, look at there. Or so like when a player says, "Oh, this game feels really good," it really it's because it's not really accurate. It's actually forgiving the mistakes they're making. Yeah, it's very yeah, <laughs> yeah, and but you know, ultimately, when you're playing the game, I think most people don't notice these sort of things at all, which is great because yeah. you want them to sort of be happening behind the scenes, um, and people just getting into a flow and just enjoying it and not worrying about, "Oh, was I off by two pixels?" or did I push this button at exactly the right millisecond? It's more just like being a natural extension of their uh, it feels, emotions. Yeah, it feels like play. Yeah. Um, I think the other the other half of me, I mean, it was literally millisecond by millisecond timing of uh, the movements of the grapple um, and, and the distance as well. So I think we spent a good amount of time tweaking exactly 
the uh, the grapple would be. Um, and then, and actually, a, a point of like forgiveness as well is uh, your aim, right? So when you when you go to grapple out in this original version here, you can kind of see it, but you really have to get the grapple right on top. Of yeah, to like yeah, to miss that collectible there, even though you're like a quarter of a unit away from it. Um, and yeah, it just didn't feel great to again be like a pixel off um, or spend a lot of time like carefully aiming the stick in exactly the right direction. Um, we wanted people to just sort of just get a sense of where they wanted to go and be able to go there. Yes. Yeah, so, oh, so yeah, the grapple. I think collider is a little bit larger than the actual art asset. I think it's approaching twice as large. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> and and there's actually a collider in the um, in the cable as well. That so if the if the cable like is within the vicinity of an anchor, then like you'll still grapple to it. So it's actually not just the grapple hook that allows you to hang on. You can you can use you can also use the cable. Yeah, and that we found that if people grapple too early, the grapple hook beyond the, the point and so then it, the the uh, cable would collide with it and so yeah we wanted to get that uh, hit it as well. So yeah it's sort of like these unintuitive uh, changes or tweaks um, but once they're in there you don't even notice you know they, they become completely intuitive. <laughs> I definitely enjoy those forgivenesses. Uh, I, I uh, as I said before it, it's a uh, really fun game but yeah, I'm I'm having I'm having trouble aiming and and things like that. So that forgiveness is very welcome in my book. I was um, playing the Crash Bandicoot remake on Switch uh, quite recently, and uh, they don't have any forgiveness at all. Uh, I yeah, it's it's really really um, hard on you when when you're uh, as you said you're like two pixels off. Uh, of an edge or something. I'm like, no, I landed that. Uh, and they're like, no, no, you, you fell off and you lost a life. Well, here it's more forgiving, but it also uh, then allows for a better flow um, in my mind. It, it's easier to get into a flow and have fun with it uh, instead of trying to make sure that you um, don't miss those two pixels. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And, and that's, uh, we hope that people uh, have that experience as they play through. It's definitely something we're focusing on. In fact, the first, was it three months or so of production was just getting the chip, chip to, to feel right and to get the grapple to feel right. And so we actually spent a lot of time with a game that kind of looked like this. Um, uh, and just to, to get the character to be exactly right before we built out you know, dozens of levels uh, based on those exact metrics and, and movement. Yeah, yeah, because I we knew after that part change, any changes to the character would mean like a simultaneous change to all of the levels. So like yeah, because so the levels were all chips movement. We um we tried to come up with uh, a set of rules for our own level design um, in terms of how far apart things would be. Or how tall a jump might be, um, or how far away anchors could be from each other. Um, and uh, we actually we built a couple of tools to help sort of measure 
measure those things as we're designing the levels. Um, Cause it kind of in a similar way that we want players to feel like in a flow when they're, when they're uh, playing the game, we wanted to be able to create the levels uh, quickly and easily and get into a flow in designing them. Um, and that's really hard when you're kind of fighting with a lot, trying to work with, um, you know, trying to make something new and uh, there aren't necessarily things out there that are going to meet your exact needs. So, yeah, we ended up uh, extending Unity a bit. Yeah, there's um, a lot of custom tools that we have. Yeah, and so it creates, there, there's a minimum and maximum um, like air distance between anchors that, um, that, that like we knew going in would have to, had to be set up. So I don't think any anchors are like two, two units like this close together. Right. And they don't extend more than, let's say, like this far apart because like you can always get to an anchor from another anchor, mm-hmm. usually two other anchors as well. Yeah, yeah, we want them to be within reach. Um, and yeah, it ties back to that. For, like, yeah. you can make a jump that's, let's say, 12 units wide, but it's just not as fun as making a jump that's like eight units wide. So. And you can definitely make it, but it's <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, this uh, this screenshot here is is of Unity, um, and you can kind of see some of the some of the tools in here. Um, in the uh, in the top left, there's circles there, and that's actually indicating the path that some of our moving anchors are going to take. So these ones spin in a circle, um, and so we need to be able to visualize exactly where they're going. So that we can measure the distance between them as they're at certain points around the circle. Yeah, or if they were going to think go within a wall, or um, yeah, and yeah, because we would have them pass through the like lava, and all the other hazards, and then you can see yeah, another in the bottom right, there's a a, a clef, a music clef icon. Um, and so that is uh, just, it's an indicator that uh, the music is meant to change over to the next section when you reach that point. So when, yeah, when Chip walks through that zone right there, um, the music will switch over to the next loop. And this level in particular, I remember there's like a, a, a crazy part of the music that's yeah. supposed to be in time with these huge uh, conveyor belt accelerated yeah. jumps. That one's like, yeah, that one's like a little more precise, but it's meant to like make you fly a little bit. It's quite easy, but yeah, it's like kind of like a little reward for its yeah. So yeah, that was one of the tools to make sure that the music was kind of matching the action of the game. The sound icon is that for the different sounds of the texture chips on? Those ones were for um you can see they're they're most of those are associated with the conveyor belts. So maybe a little small on screen, but um, the uh, the conveyor belts have like ambient sound that they're playing constantly of like machinery kind of moving, um, and so yeah, those are indicating uh, objects that will play play a, a sound like that. I think you can kind of see them in the center. There's three right in a row. I think that's actually some moving anchors. Um, they have like sort of a clicking sound that they'll make, and they they move on the track. Uh, when you get close to them. So yeah, th- th- those will indicate the area where you can hear this sound. Um, we were using uh, FMOD, 
which is like a piece of middleware, um, to work with our sound designer composer um, to get the sounds into the game. And so, yeah, those are like an FMOD icon. What, uh, what the... Yeah, sorry, go ahead, Rich. What was the reason for selecting Unity over, I think, Unreal's now open too? What was the, the reason behind that? Um, Probably the familiarity. Um, we had noodled around uh, quite a bit, and so we knew we could get running, like, up and running a little bit quicker with Unity. And um, there were quite a bit of plugins that we knew about and we knew that, like, we we had some background knowledge that we maybe could like get this game. Okay. Yeah. I think some of the, the tools that Unity has for making a 2D game are a little bit more refined than than has a big focus on 3D, obviously. Um, so I think I think that was part of the decision as well. Um, but uh, maybe one other aspect is that we we wanted I think the, the editor in Unity was like a big selling point and allowed the whole team to sort of have a central point where they could be contributing to the game or, or see you know see and play the game uh, relatively easily without needing a bunch of like, programming experience or have to like pile the game um, uh, yeah so that that was also a big selling point is maybe why we didn't go with the, the uh, smaller frameworks like you know mono game one of those types of tools. I want to um, go back a little to the musical uh, platforming segments. Um, did you take any inspiration from Rayman there at all? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was a big part of that. Yeah, I think, I think the whole team is a pretty big fan of, uh, of the Rayman games in general. Yeah. Um, and I think we... Um, you know, Rayman's obviously got levels that they're almost like uh, Guitar Hero. Yeah. You know? uh, they're perfectly timed where you have to jump exactly on the beat or during the moments. I think we wanted to go with something that was a little less Guitar Hero-y and more... It's like, a little looser, yeah. and that would just... I, I mean, still allow you to... like. It, it was less precise, but uh, the music kind of just... And, and the um, gameplay just adjusts to you a little bit more. And so basically, yeah, so the music levels, they basically like will, it, it's actually like very similar to musicals and like operas. So there's like a concept called like vamping. So uh, when we were working with the composer, we were just like, we indicated like, yeah, write this similar to a musical or an opera. And like, we know, like, we want to split this into about sections or, um, or just like where you think they're a, a good section with vamp, like putting a measure or two. And so we took that music and then we actually built the game or the level around the music for those levels. Yeah, it was actually really great to, to work with the composer as we had, we had quite a bit of back and forth. Um, we got some early sketches of the music, especially for the, the boss yeah. levels, um, pretty early on. Um, all things considered. And so we were able to, to put those into the game really quickly and see how things felt. And yeah, ultimately, we essentially designed the whole level around, the, in the, in, at least for, <clears throat> for the boss levels. Um, and then 
I think that that went so well that we actually went back through all of the levels and made sure that all of the moving objects were all kind of moving to the same beat of the music. And I think that that was um, it was something we realized later on, but it tied everything together really nicely. And, and even if you don't notice it, that that, that exact thing is happening, you, you can, can kind feel of feel it. it. Yeah, you can feel the rhythm. So even though like in the same in the same world, uh, like I'd say the second world, even though it's like the swinging, like, you know, the swinging things with chains on them, they they actually like the timing, how they swing back and forth changes by level depending on the song that's being used, even though they come up multiple times. And, and yeah, it feels like really rhythmic when you're when you're going through these levels, and I and I think it, it's that like it helps the players a lot, like being able to like use the music to feel the movement of the objects. Otherwise, um, it was going to get really confusing to like have the music and then also have the op- or the um, obstacles moving a certain. So it's just like synchronized everything. We've actually got this giant spreadsheet of every music track and like a, a formula to calculate how many milliseconds are between, you know, how, how many milliseconds each beat takes so that we could time things out. Um, and, you know, as we're tweaking the levels, like, okay, this platform needs one or two beats slower yeah. or take one or two beats longer to move because it's hard, it's too fast. Uh, so we need to add two beats to it. That's that fun. That's really cool. Yeah, that, that must have been uh, some spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we actually... We had this one sort of like master spreadsheet that included a ton of stuff about the production in general. Like we had listed out every single prop and um, every sound. Um, we think, yeah, every level and of what each like level is like intended to be themed. And I think, yeah, and then there's one song and like what what world is used for. Um, so yeah, because we had basically given the concept art to the composer to help guide her to uh, like determine like the musical feel as well. Uh, that mm-hmm. world. Yeah, but yeah, that that was enormously helpful to have everything listed out. And I think you know, like a, a common problem with games in general, I think, is is keeping things on schedule and. Uh, releasing at the right time. Um, you know, we we tried to approach this in that we had a single mechanic and we thought, okay, well, there's, there's just one main mechanic, so that'll keep things simple and we just have to make it perfectly. Um, but, yeah, it's it was always, like, uh, an understatement or just, you know, it, <laughs> seeing the final lists of everything that we ended up making again exponentially larger than I think our initial expectations. Yeah. And I suspect that, that that happens a lot. Um, so being able to actually see it in a spreadsheet and be able to know definitively, okay, if we just if we make these 10, 20 things, then it's done. We've got 100% of it in there. Um, so that's really, it's really useful to have. It kept us on track. I have another question regarding um, the music for the game. So the, yeah. the first level or so i can't remember which one it is um but i as i was playing it i get this really strong kill bill uh 
uh, feeling. And I, and I didn't run, really understand why until I talked to Rich. Uh, it's because of the, the it's surf. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm just wondering, how, how did you come to the conclusion, let's add some surf music uh, to, <laughs> to uh, a game about jumping robots or swinging robots? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah. Actually, I think um, we wanted to expand outside of like the typical game genre and like more move into like it was, it was about the environment and rather than like the game as well. So it just like felt a little bit like I guess almost like it's like ominous surf, I guess. But um, and yeah, I, I know the composer really likes this. Yeah. That's Quentin Tarantino, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we we'd actually seen the composer perform uh, just like in a rock show, and um, I think after we saw that, we're like, you know, this this would be great for a game. <laughs> That's um, awesome. Even though it's, it's sort of outside of maybe your normal game type music or genre, um, and yeah, I think I think we also tried to leave a lot to the composer. Like we tried not to. Do you know? Not we gave them concept art. You know, we tried to tell them what was going to be happening at that particular part of the game, but tried not to influence too much about exactly what the final result uh, is going to be. Um, and uh, I think we only there was only like two songs maybe where we we thought a, a different direction would be better. Yeah. Okay. Um, One of them that got. Uh, that essentially, like, we redirected from, I think, was the finale music for I think when you beat the game, because I think what actually ended up happening that it was the Russian National Anthem was written. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so, so I to move away from that one. It sounded really good, actually. It sounds great, but I don't think it we sounds, can use it. It sounds <laughs> really familiar. <Wow>. <laughs> yeah, I think there's some, like, uh, subconscious information leaking in there so, um but yeah i think you know it, it ended up being actually quite a lot of music written there's 30 tracks or so so yeah um and covering like a huge variety of genres and, and so that's why like we wanted to work with Silverman because like they when we saw them perform they were like, like they had a lot of jazz but also a lot of um rock and even metal and there was actually like some elements of like really catchy pop and um and then like and then a lot of classical influence as well so we wanted to like have that variety that we knew Sermon could do that as yeah. well and like, I think the third world there's um I forgot the one the, there's there's a level that's called um something level tang or something like that but it sounds very hip-hoppy and it's really catchy and it's so good um but yeah that's like more hip-hop and then there's i think there's a one of the classical modes out there there's like a brockner piece referenced at some point in one of those songs <laughs> yeah i think it's one of the boss levels has some brockner <laughs> I love that you're, that you're trying to expand um, uh, the game musically that way. Um, I really enjoy 
the the soundtrack and it's on bandcamp as well i believe yeah um yeah i think it's on spotify um you can pick up a copy on Bandcamp. that's probably the best place to get it if you want if you want to get a copy um but you can also get it on steam and and um uh, spotify so uh, another question uh, about expanding uh, the game itself. So um, the the game is available in English and Japanese. Um, what was the uh, reasoning behind that translation choice, and how? Uh, what, what was the uh, process like to translate the game into Japanese? Uh, it was super. Actually, it was really fun. I'll start off with that. I like really, really enjoyed doing the translations and working the translator, um, and similar to like the composer, because it's like we're able to give them like a little bit of free reign to interpret it in Japanese. Um, so I, I guess like to start, we chose one language um, for like a couple reasons because we wanted to build out our translation system, and we knew we wanted to. We weren't sure how difficult it would be, and then so. We knew we wanted to do it for the Switch. And so the process was basically, uh, we chose Japanese because actually just based on like, interacting with people, um, there were some Japanese players that were really interested. And I, I think like, development-wise, it would probably be a tricky language to work with as well. Yeah, we figured it was pretty dramatically different from English. And that might present some challenges in, in terms of actually getting into the game. Um, uh, so yeah, we, we thought that if we're just going to do one language, that's maybe a good one to start with because it will run into a number of things that need to be solved. And if we can do that one, then we, sh we should be able to do any other. Um, I think the only thing we haven't tried to tackle yet is right to left line, which presents another yeah. problem, but <laughs> eventually we'll get there. Um, but yeah, I'm, overall, so we, we had had some translations before in other contexts. Um, and that was typically like a larger process where things getting translated into 100 million languages and, and working with a large company to actually provide the translations. Um, and I think, at least in my experience, it's always been extremely complicated and difficult to get the thing translated and then get the languages into it. To the game. Um, so I think we're a little nervous about it going yeah. into it. Uh, it's why sure. we picked one language to do. It was way easier than we thought it would be, actually. The game. And, yeah. um, we, we actually did, like, so we were able to establish our own structure for it. And, like, Unity, like, luckily just released, like, a new feature, like, two weeks before. We, we did use an ex experimental part of Unity. <laughs> For the translations, but it worked out fine. Yeah, yeah. most of it's experiments. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. We we were uh, looking at different tools to help with this sort of thing, um, and uh, yeah, we got lucky. Unity released, um, you know, like a preview version of their localization tools, and we tried them out, and they, they were good. So, um, and they worked on the switch. <laughs> yeah, it's actually basically. Um, a spreadsheet of all the text in the game. And so we knew even from the beginning that we, there was the possibility that we would want to try translation. And that's why there's actually almost no text in the game. 
Um, I think there's only like a few hundred words total, and most of that is menu. Yeah, yeah, most is in the menus. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so like we actually designed the to knowing that we might want to do translation and that we want to like like, like minimize the complexity of it, mm-hmm. and then so later on when we do it. Um, it was basically, it's a spreadsheet and then all the English is in one column and then there's, and because there's a lot of puns in there, like every level is a and every skin is a pun. So we, and there's a lot of references and basically um, we, there's a, there's a column that has description and a reference to that joke and then so we just like wrote that in for the translator and then we just uh, his name's Toro and we just let him like run with it yeah so for the for actually getting it translated we worked with just a single person um, and I think that was actually a much better than working with a large company um, just because it felt a little bit more personal um, we were able to have like more direct conversations about what something meant uh, but yeah it was a little strange to spend i spent a couple hours like explaining every joke essentially in in the spreadsheet just writing out what the joke was supposed to be yeah and uh, the reference like there's okay there we're like really big fans of arrested development and archer and like um there so there are a lot of archer and arrested to different like parts of shows as well. <laughs> I, I think there's a Bob Berger reference that we have to like yeah. dig into YouTube to find. I mean, <laughs> the actress just passed away yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah just all. I know. Yeah, yeah. She, amazing. I think there's like some quotes to her from her because her quotes are so amazing. They're so funny. Yeah, she was really incredible. Too bad. Yeah, and yeah, so. Um, yeah, the, a lot of the translations like had to like carry over from like really culturally significant shows in the U.S. to um, like something in Japanese. I, I think there's like the the first level, of the third world is like it's Goru Goru, which I think, and I think that level is just called like Rolling Rolling Rolling, but Goru 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 in Japanese I think has a slightly different meaning, but it. And yeah. it has like that cadence as well. Yeah, so it's like the difference between um, just translation and localization. One, yeah. you know, translation being you take each word and translate it, whereas localization is like making it appropriate for that culture and that, that language. So yeah, that, that one stuck out in particular because the level name, I don't know if that one's a reference necessarily, it's more just like a, a, like a sound. Yeah, and, okay, so that's a reference. Like Walmart commercials from the nineties. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, it's rolling, 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 rolling. The price is rolling. <laughs> it's it's a very obscure reference. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, yeah. So that's that's what we explained it as. But like, yeah, he, he did a really great job translating all of that. Yeah. So so going to go in Japanese, I think it's just like an onomatopoeia. That is the sound of something tumbling. Yeah. T- you know, tumbling. Um, that makes so, sense. You, know, you know, if you look up 
rolling, rolling, rolling in um, like Google Translate or something, you'll never come up with what the translator was able to do. So it, it was actually, yeah, it was really great to work with him and, and uh, it went very smoothly. Yeah, uh, it was really fun. Yeah. We would definitely do that again and maybe we can expand to some more languages. Yeah, and like, so we would, I mean, just for fun, it was just like really fun to like, um, just like put stuff into Google Translate and just see like what things were translating to. And we have like, like, you know, when we were young, language classes class and, and and new like there's just like slang different cultures so it's like really fun to just like learn all of that and like like translation translation yeah and I think um I, there was a couple of cases too where especially working with Nintendo where I think it was better that we had Japanese in there um, and it's hard to say for sure necessarily but um, as part of like you know uh, submitting the game, uh, we did submit the Japanese name as well. Um, and I think, I think it's paid off. We have a couple of like Japanese fans. There's, yeah. there's been some like fan art uh, that's come through. People have made like pixel art of Chip and, and the battery bots. And so that, that was really yeah. nice to see. It's so good. They seem to be pretty excited about the Japanese translation. <laughs> so speaking of the, the Switch, you uh, launched on Switch yesterday. How did the uh, launch day go? It was great. great. Yeah. yeah. We, um, Sterberman did a lot on her Instagram as well. And just like, because, like, yeah, video games are, um, like a different genre for musicians and, like, encouraging like, musicians. Like, that, yeah, you, you can write games for music. And, like, it's really cool. And, um, and it's very collaborative, too. And then I think we did a, we did a fun launch as well and launch event like with uh event company in boston called trace complete they normally run tekken tournaments online but yeah they they stepped in and helped us out there that was really fun and i think yeah it was mostly like the reviews have been really good as well we're really stoked about yeah i think a lot of our day yesterday was making sure that everything was released correctly and then it all went smoothly. But once that sort of was all done, we spent a lot of time, uh, you know, on social media, making sure that people knew about it, um, following up with anyone who had posted about about the game, um, doing the live events, which uh, is always a lot of work. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so far, you know, so far the reviews have been very good. Yeah. We're pretty happy with that. No day one patch either. Really cool. Yeah, we haven't had to patch the game. <laughs> that, that's that's really cool. I know uh, you can patch the game because you can always make changes, updates, add new things, but eventually you do have to move on. Does it ever feel like the game's finished, or you're just <laughs> abandoning it? Yeah, it's tough. There's there's definitely things we left on the table. You know, yeah, um, a lot of cool ideas that like check and and like yeah, chicken. Chip could potentially do a lot of uh, different moves that um, that really open up like the world for the future. Yeah. So I think you know for this game, I, I think you know we'll see. There's there's a couple of things, especially. Um, but yeah, we started some conversation about some some areas that 
maybe we want to add this particular thing, that particular thing. So yeah, it's, it certainly feels like it just never ends. But yeah, at the same time, I think we will need to just set it aside and work on something else. Um, but who knows? You know, maybe there's a chip sequel in our future, or a, um, yeah, that's sort of thing. <laughs> Awesome. I, I, Sonic I, two, and then he has a little partner for number two, and now there's two. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We were we were uh, talking about. That. Uh, I think that would be a great thing for a sequel. <laughs> so, um, hold off on on the sequel news until you have something to announce, I guess. But yeah, <laughs> we, we we all know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, what about the the indie scene right now? Um, what are you excited about uh, within the indie scene? You you said you you started this game, you started developing uh, on the game roughly in January last year. Uh, quick uh, quick turnaround. You got the game released on Steam. It's now out on Switch. Um, what are your feelings about the indie scene in general, and what are you most excited about uh, within the, the the next few years? Yeah, I think the the indie scene's like very dynamic and there's still there's like really really cool ideas that people are coming up with and i think like yeah a lot of games are pushing like the boundaries of games like like wider and um i think everyone is like taking cues from each other and yeah and we've, we've actually been influenced by indie games as well um whether they are yeah, I think one of the things that's been great is just how open everybody is to sharing their experience or sharing information um, or just sharing a game. Um, and uh, yeah, that's been really useful, especially in our playtesting, just trying to get people that are making games and um, you know, talk about the industry and what their process was, or yeah, helping each other. Like it's a sort of scene, and everyone's like really open to like provide feedback on like one another's games. And we actually like yeah, during like we were playtesting, we we like actually we really try to like play a lot of the games out there just because we had the setup to do screen recording. Um, we we really wanted to like just. Like utilize that to play other people's games in the indie scene, and so they could like they they could get um, they had they could get some of that playtesting as well. Yeah, I think we um, we found our translator I think through another small group, I believe. Yeah. Um, so yeah, some of the like networking stuff's been great, and uh, yeah, everyone's open. Um, I think uh, it's it's tough to be an indie. Um, it certainly in terms of like budget and scheduling resources and um, just reach. Uh, I think I think the marketing aspects for us in particular are like one of the harder things uh, to try and to do uh, alongside making the game. Um, but yeah, it's great to see that sort of like very open, uh, supportive of each other. Because uh, I think I think that sort of thing does help. But yeah, getting getting your name out there as an indie, I think, is very challenging. I think a lot of people struggle with it. <laughs> what are you? Are um? What are you? Do you have any 
suggestions or any uh, tips for someone who's getting started uh, within the indie scene? Um, how to reach out to people, how to find people. Uh, you might be a fantastic graphical artist or a developer, but you don't have the other skills. Um, how do you get started? Uh, I actually, yeah, I, I'd actually say like try to go out, play other games, and because then you'll like be able to interact with other game makers, and you'll be able to like see the works in progress, see how like, you might fit into that. Um, and then, yeah, I think that's how we've actually like reached out to some people, just like contacting other games and like. Just like whether you're going to like Boston Indie or you Wonderville or just going to one of the um when they like come back in person, like going to conventions. We actually went to Pakistan like five years ago just to like see what was happening and see like, like what went into making it. There's yeah, there's a lot of like uh work in progress there too, so it's like really fun. Yeah, I was going to say that there's very likely uh, some kind of local group that uh, you could seek out um, if you're looking to sort of get involved. Um, and I think, yeah, if you if you look around, I'm sure there's somewhere that has like an open, just an open call and something like that. I think we were lucky in that, at least initially in this project, we had sort of two weekly or monthly ones that, that we found we were able to go to. Um, and so that that was great yeah just to meet other people that are making games and also feedback um i think that's enormously important I, I guess the other thing uh that comes to mind in terms of if you're just getting started out is just to make stuff you know if you, if you can make something or or even if you're just learning about how to make something uh just doing it i think you the most experience um uh, with yeah making games because um, it's always very hard uh, when you're just starting out. And I think, um, yeah, I think keep things small, keep it, uh, you know, contained. Um, but don't let, that just, don't let that stop you from just making stuff. <laughs> I feel like one of the, one of the aspects of um, that, one of the aspects that led us to the Switch was just our willingness and the team's willingness to sort of just dive into it um, because a lot of the, the information about how that's supposed to work and how, how to get the game actually on the Switch is not public. So you have to be able to sort of just dive in and get feedback. Yeah, and, and yeah, just also dive in and apply. I mean, we, we weren't sure if we would be accepted by uh, Nintendo for a Switch release. It's like really cool thing. We went through it. And yeah, and we just went for it. Um, yeah, and same with like, I, I, yeah, I guess this ties back. Yeah, this ties back to like getting yourself out there, whether it's just um, like just going to the protesters. That was, it was actually really nerve wracking. Like the first playtest we went to, we weren't really sure how to like handle it and how people would react. But it's okay if there's like visceral hatred. It, it's fine. <laughs> they really don't like it. Feedback. The negative feedback is the best feedback for your game. And yeah, I think what you what you don't want is if someone just kind of shrugs. Like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> um, you kind of want them to have a visceral reaction, whether it's very positive or negative. 
that'll give you something to, to go off of. Um, but if it's just like, yeah, whatever, then maybe you lost their attention. <laughs> um, so, yeah. But yeah, you know, other than that, in terms of uh, advice for just getting started out, I, you know, I, good luck. <laughs> um, it's definitely not easy if you have a assistant. Yeah. And, um, you know, this it's like is... A, it's like a marathon, like a big endurance event. Yeah, like the, the, the production cycle is definitely like an endurance event. All the way through the end, getting to the finish line. Yeah. There's a lot of stages. I guess one other thing that, that's maybe good to keep in mind is, uh, you know, don't be afraid to cut things or change course or, um, you know, rework something that's just not working. Um, I think there were a lot of things I did cut from this game, but to be honest, I, I don't most of them. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, ultimately, I think the game is much better off because we've we tried to keep it as focused as possible on a single uh, main mechanic and a single sort of point of focus. Um, and yeah, all, all the things that maybe we felt strongly about initially cutting now are not important. And yeah, it feels good fine. So yeah, don't be afraid to, to cut things or let things go. Is it the phrase like, can you die? Yeah. yeah, sort of a morbid uh, yeah. saying. <laughs> So speaking of getting your name out there, um, where can people find you on the interwebs? Yeah, okay. So our website is redstart.io. And then from there, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, and Discord. And um, depending on your platform of choice. And so that is, we're all redstart.io on those platforms as well. And um, Twitter, like you can see our daily updates and, and Facebook and Twitter as well. And if you want to come hang out and chat, uh, we're, we're on Discord a lot. Awesome. And uh, Rich? Oh, yep. I'm RW McGrath and everything, rwmcgrath.com. I kept it real easy. And I'm at Jonas Rosland, and you can find us um, at headsave.org. Uh, thank you so much, John and Vicky and Rich. Uh, this has been fantastic talking to you about Get a Grip Chip. It's super fun. Highly recommend everyone to check it out. Uh, and as we said, it's out on Switch now as well if you want it in portable mode. Um, highly recommend it. Go check it out. And again, thank you all and see you all next time. Thank you. Thanks, Jonas. Thank you. Bye. See ya.